Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we are taking a look at how the sector is doing in the wake of the pandemic. Obviously, that's an enormous subject and we couldn't hope to cover it in a half hour podcast episode. And it's also a subject that actually you could argue about 80% of our news stories have in some way been dealing with since March 2020. But there have been a few really interesting news stories in the past week or so that could be kind of indicative of how things are going. To be very clear, we know this isn't over yet. The virus is still very much alive and kicking and there's every chance another lockdown or at least more restrictions could be in our future. But as the world tentatively begins to open up again, we wanted to sit back and take stock. So first up, with restrictions having lifted on the 19th of July, that in theory means that charities are free to resume some fundraising activities, which is excellent news. One of the biggest impacts, as I'm sure everyone knows, of the pandemic was the fact that so many fundraising activities were impossible as a result of lockdown and social distancing measures. So this is great news. But obviously, that comes with a massive caveat. Many donors may not feel comfortable or safe with certain activities, and actually many fundraisers will probably have their own reservations. The Fundraising Regulator and the Chartered Institute of Fundraising have urged charities to maintain a cautious approach to fundraising following the lifting of restrictions. And last week, they published new guidance, which they said they hoped would support the fundraising sector to fundraise, quote, safely and responsibly. The guidance, available on the regulator's website, emphasises the importance of planning, preparation and good decision making when thinking about resuming certain fundraising activities. So the key points that are listed are that charities should keep up to date with and follow government guidance and any continuing or new restrictions, and obviously that includes regional or local ones, depends you know, which country of the UK you're in, uh, and they should also carry out thorough risk assessment to identify the risks associated with the fundraising activity. And then following the outcome of that risk assessment, identify the steps you will need to take to protect the public, fundraisers and volunteers. And actually, I thought one of the really interesting bits of advice that was offered in the guidance under this section was um, that you should train fundraisers on new approaches before you restart fundraising, which I thought was a, a really important point. A really important point, because obviously we are living in a very different world these days. And if you might have been a little wary about someone approaching you shaking a bucket and asking you to throw a handful of change in, you know, two years ago. Now you might have people who are going to be actively, you know, anxious about that. So, you know, what are the other things that organisations need to be considering when they are thinking about training those fundraisers? What are the considerations? Um, So, I mean, kind of like you've just said, it also says charities should consider the public mood and the likely feelings and preferences of supporters. And bearing in mind that many people may not want to donate or engage with you in the same way that they did before the pandemic. Essentially, what it says is they should ensure decisions made to carry out a fundraising activity are fully considered, carefully evaluated and regularly reviewed. So all of that guidance, by the way, it's a really interesting document. That's on the fundraising regulators website. Um, So, yeah. So on the fundraising front, good news, but with a lot of caution and caveats. Sure. But there are, you know, I'm really interested to see what comes of it, the kind of innovations that we see organisations coming up with. I know I've talked about it on this podcast before, but um, the thing that has always really stuck in my head is when Greenpeace adapted their door-to-door fundraising um, last year, which involved them having this rollout mat, which rolled out the length of two metres and it had a kind of a rainforest painted on it with orangutans and that kind of thing. So when they knocked doing their door-to-door fundraising, they would then immediately roll out the mat and stand at the far end of it. So you had this really clear signposting for being like, 
I am two metres away from you, but also it had points of interest which people could then look at, um, which linked straight back to the cause. So really smart, really innovative. And I'm sure we'll be seeing lots more of these things uh, based on, you know, this interesting new guidance. Yeah, absolutely. On a similar note, we've seen the data agency Woodford Trees launch a state of the sector report this week. And that has showed significant growth in income and recruitment in the charity sector between January and June 2021. That's compared to the same period last year. This report looks at data from 10.7 million supporters. And according to the findings, charity income has risen by 7% in the last six months. Donor recruitment is also up by around 58%. And both of these things have largely been driven by one-off donations, which have increased dramatically since the start of the COVID-19 crisis. As well as these one-off donations, regular giving continues to be a resilient source of income for charities. And that has remained at similar levels to this time last year. However, other forms of giving, so things like community fundraising and gaming, have been slightly down, but they are remaining stable. Unsurprisingly, we've seen an increased use of digital methods and a resurgence of direct mail um, in communicating with donors and potential donors. And these have proved to be by far the most successful channels when it comes to finding new recruits. And that I do think is quite interesting, actually, because I think early in the pandemic, there was a, I, I was definitely having conversations with people about um, direct mail, for instance, was working better because people were at home and they were sort of bored and they were kind of like, oh, a letter has come for me. Someone wants to speak to me. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And they were just like, oh, yeah, OK, I'll read this. And, and they were probably engaging with it probably on a, on a much higher level than they, they had been doing previously, because, you know, previously it was kind of coming and be like, oh, the postman's been... Mm. Yeah. Uh, after work. Uh, so I thought that was quite an interesting. So, yeah, that's, it's interesting to see it being borne out in the numbers sort of, you know, a year and a half on. Absolutely. And that's exactly what the numbers are suggesting. So recruitment by digital um, has risen by almost 40 percent um, and recruitment from direct mail apparently is currently three times higher than it was in the first half of 2020. So I think you're, you're absolutely not right. The numbers are bearing out everything that you've just said there. There's also been what Wood for Trees calls a significant shift in supporter profiles. So the kind of people who are giving to charity over the last year. New donor recruits tend to be younger and less affluent, particularly when it comes to things like community fundraising and gaming. And although the overall typical supporters are still older and more affluent, this does indicate that there might be an emerging audience coming. And again, you know, that's interesting because you know, charities are looking to cultivate long-term relationships with donors. And if you start them young, it may be that you end up with a kind of really involved relationship with somebody. So even though they may not have much money now, um, because you know younger people tend to have less money over their lifetime, it may be that if you can continue that relationship, you are going to have a donor who has more money. Um, and particularly there's things like we're expected to see in the next kind of 20 years, the biggest wealth, generational wealth transfer in history because... Um, older people are going to die, baby boomers are going to die, and they're going to leave their money to their children. So suddenly people are going to be coming into this wealth. And and there is kind of a really big argument for developing a relationship with younger people who may not have much money now, but may come into it in the future. But you are absolutely right that when it boils down to the numbers, you know, increasing recruitment levels has meant that the total number of active supporters has risen. It's now 2.5% higher than it was at the start of the pandemic. And overall, the value of these active supporters, so bluntly, the amount that they are giving is also up. So that's really, really positive news for the sector, you know, and hopefully that will play out as a longer term trend as the initial crisis starts to ease. But as those one off donations are the things that are continuing to dominate this landscape, there is a note of caution. 
Um, Wood for Trees essentially says that these new supporters will need that further nurturing, that further engagement as time progresses. So it's data from one group of charities. But again, we're seeing, you know, cautious optimism here. And I think it comes back to Rebecca, as you said, now converting those one-off donors into that lifetime journey of support. Um, and that will be, you know, the the really crucial thing as we look ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of another interesting news story from the past week. Um, and again, on the face of it, potential to be really good news. So at least 70 job losses have been averted at Cancer Research UK after a better than expected financial performance. So Cancer Research UK, one of the biggest, I think the biggest fundraising charity in the UK. And you know, last year they were saying this is going to be really bad for us. And, you know, they were talking tens of millions because because it's such a big charity, for so much money. And actually it lost £50 million less than it expected to in the end, which is, is fantastic news. Like that is a huge amount of money. So the charity warned in July last year that it would have to cut the size of its workforce by between 295 and 345 employees as a result of a predicted £300 million drop in income over the next Next three years. But the latest accounts uh, up to the 31st of March 2021 shows that only 221 jobs were lost from its 4,094 strong workforce after it reported a revised income drop of 250 million. That's really positive. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not it's not really positive. It's not the best news, but it's an improvement on what we were predicting. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So the charity said its performance was better than expected as a result of cost-saving measures, coupled with supporters continuing to give generously, which put it in a stronger position than initially predicted. Redundancies were also reduced through a recruitment freeze and by redeploying colleagues and removing vacancies. And once again, there is a caveat. The charity said that a number of redundancies may also take place in the financial year 2021 to 22. So, you know, I think... Again, again, with the cautious optimism, like we're not out of the woods yet, but it's not been quite as bad as expected. I think as as we keep saying, there's a long way to go and there are plenty of different routes that this pandemic could yet take. So cautious optimism continues to be the phrase of the day on this podcast. Yeah. And next up, we're going to flip the script and have some bad news, but with a positive note. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm the bad news goblin. Um, oh. So another news story from the past week has been from the Charity Retail Association, which estimates that charity shop volunteer numbers are down at least 20% on 2019 levels. So according to the CRA, around 233,000 people were volunteering in charity shops before the pandemic. So that means we've seen a drop of 46,600 volunteers. That's a, that's a hell of a lot of people. I have to say, it is a lot of people, but I don't necessarily know that I am that surprised by this. I mean, I don't have I don't have a data pot on the demographics of charity shop volunteers, um, so this is purely an anecdotal observation from me. But what I would say was, you know, I think that uh, in the charity shops that I normally go to, the volunteers that you see working there tend to be typically a little older um and probably falling into that category of people who would be more vulnerable to the pandemic so it might well be that you know this is down to people having to shield wanting to stay away and be cautious and not coming into these busy retail environments again which you could of course understand well i think also just to add on to that point i think coupled with that they probably have had volunteers who were furloughed volunteers you know people who were younger who, who kind of didn't have options and those people are now moving back into the workforce as well so and, and having less time on their hands and you know less able to volunteer so bearing in mind that we are seeing a resourcing problem for charity shops, um, what does the CRA suggest? 
Uh, the CRA is launching a campaign to match volunteers with charity shops and highlight the benefits of volunteering in charity retail. So they're asking anyone interested in volunteering in a charity shop to sign up at charityshopvolunteer.org.uk, which is a platform that's been built free of charge by the tech company WeU. Uh, so the idea is that you sign up to this platform and then you can be matched with a charity shop in your locality and you know with your in, sort of your area of interest, you know, a cause that you are interested in in donating to. Um, so you know fingers crossed that it is successful. And as I say, this isn't a wholly bad news story because part of this is about that charity shops have experienced a surge in donations and rising sales since reopening. As we've discussed many times, people have been having clear outs over lockdown. People have been getting rid of stuff. You know, people are ringing the changes. So the CRA says that as a result of the extra donations and so on, charity shops are hugely outperforming their pre-pandemic sales figures. So as I said, bad news story with a little bit of good news in the tale. So yeah, an interesting week in terms of thinking about what position the sector is in at the moment. And actually, this is something that you've also been looking at for the most recent edition of the magazine, um, so particularly around the impact for smaller charities, right? Yes, absolutely right. And um, I was really curious about the small charities sector as we were putting together the summer issue. Um, because if you remember back to the first weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, I certainly felt like I was seeing lots of warnings about the crisis, but particularly how it was going to impact those smaller local organisations. Um, and there was a lot of doom mongering, I suppose, going on. So people were, for one thing, really concerned that the government's £750 million bailout was not going to go far enough. And it could easily be argued that that bailout did not go far enough. Um, so that was one concern. And another was that, you know, we were seeing this escalating demand for services. And that was particularly impacting small local organisations that worked close to the ground with their communities. I think a really telling kind of illustration of this is that when the Charities Aid Foundation launched an emergency £5 million fund, which was specifically targeted at providing small charities with COVID-19 relief, um, CAF was forced to close the fund within days because it received grant applications that totaled more than £40 million. Again, to reiterate, the fund itself, it was only £5 million. So we were seeing really clear indicators that there was a big problem with, with supply and demand, particularly around the funding area. There was a snap poll in May from Pro Bono Economics, um, which warned that one in 10 small voluntary sector organisations feared that they would cease to operate, I think it was within about six months of the pandemic. So there was a lot of concern around, particularly for this part of the sector. And I was curious because I think, you know, we, we heard a lot about it and then it all went very quiet. So I wanted to follow up on it. And what was really interesting was that speaking to people more than a year down the line, overwhelmingly, my sense is that the vast majority of those small charities have not only survived this year, but actually many have really thrived. A large number of them have experienced exponential growth because they have been close to the ground, because they have been working with people who are vulnerable. Um, and for a lot of organisations, if their services were in particularly high demand or if they had developed a specific COVID-19 service for the people that they work with, a lot of them were able to access short term COVID-19 funding, which was being put on by organisations like London funders, like local funders. They were able to access that and that meant that they could also expand to accommodate that increased demand. So they have grown and grown and grown in line with the need which is what they have to do, because that's what they're there for. Of course, there were some organisations that couldn't do that, simply because they didn't work for a cause area that 
was easily adaptable to a COVID-19 service. So there were some instances of small charities that had to put their services on pause. But that, that bigger picture is absolutely one of resilience and adaptability. I spoke to quite a few people for this piece. I thought one really interesting anecdote was that right at the beginning of the pandemic, the Small Charities Coalition, which is the membership body for small organisations, they opened a COVID-19 response closure line and they widely advertised it among their members. And according to the outgoing chief executive, Rita Chatter, it's only had one message so far, which again, just it shows that they're not in this place where they're actually closing down. Rita Chatter said that she saw just four organisations closing among their members during the pandemic. And she thinks it's possible that this would have happened anyway, just looking at the history of the charities. And um, even more interestingly, you know, one of those actually later decided it was going to reopen and reconstitute. So they're not collapsing, they're going quiet. Um, They're putting their services on ice, and then they're probably going to bounce back again in future years. And you know, of of the other charities, they either went dormant onto ice or they pivoted their services and started delivering things in a different way. Yeah, and this is one of the kind of one of the predictions that sort of we were hearing at the time. And, and perhaps an advantage for small charities is that they don't have this huge framework. Often they don't have many members of paid staff. They can kind of just mothball themselves. Um, but I think a lot of the fear was about, yeah, okay, we can do that, and you know, the body will still be here. But this isn't about the organisation. This is about the work we do. So it's really good to hear that kind of you know, for many charities, they were able to continue doing that work, um, yeah, or to sort of pause it and preserve it for later. Um, so uh, this is all great. Like, were we were we just worried for nothing? Was that that was just a lot of panic for nothing? And small charities are fine. I wish I was. I wish I was that optimistic. I mean, uh, I think that's you, you're absolutely right. You've you've hit the nail on the head there. In that, a lot of small organisations, you know, the the reason they were able to be so agile and so nifty during this pandemic is because most of them work on a purely volunteer led base anyway. They don't have these huge, you know, um, funding pools which they then stood to lose. So they could adapt and just keep on going working on these shoestrings, which they have always been accustomed to, in many ways, much more agile than larger organisations like CRUK, for example. Um, Were we worried for nothing? I'm not that optimistic. Um, I think now we're in a very, very interesting moment where we're about to see some real challenges just beginning for this part of the sector. So one of the people I spoke to for this feature was Safia Jama, who is the chief executive of Women's Inclusive Team. WIT is a small Tower Hamlets based charity uh, which supports the local Somali community. And they have, again, seen massive growth over the last year because they did things like they developed a food bank and a community kitchen to support vulnerable people within their community, um, as well as a lot of other services that they already run. So they saw enormous growth and they expanded again to meet that need and they were able to benefit from funding from organisations like London Funders so they could do that. But now, you know, the level of income they have subsequently had over the last 12 months, something she describes as a really an exceptional year, now means that they are no longer eligible to apply for funding from the schemes aimed at small charities that traditionally they had always needed, that they had always required in order to kind of keep going. So they are now not able to apply for those funding pots anymore because they are too large and because there's such a blanket approach taken by these funders. And it's like if your income goes above a certain level, then you're no good anymore. That's a really interesting point because I think occasionally we get people sort of say, well, you know, you shouldn't just measure charity size by by income. And often for us, it is a really good quick shorthand for, you know, 
this charity has less than a million pounds. Everybody has an idea of how a million pounds a year. Everyone has an idea of how big that charity is, how many employees it has, what level they're operating at. It normally is quite helpful, but I can really see the point here about actually this is a charity that has got that income, but that doesn't reflect how they're operating and who they are and, and, and yeah, the situation they're actually in. So I think that's a really interesting one. Absolutely. And she said to me, you know, we never expect to generate this level of income again. You know, it's a one time thing. But obviously, in a lot of these forms, you have to tick the box and they say, what was your latest recorded annual income? So when they put that figure down, they're like, well, that's no good. And so what she really wants to see is a more nuanced approach from funders in the in, you know, the immediate future where they're saying, "Okay, why? Why was your income like this? So they can actually take that narrative of what's happened into account. Um, And I think, you know, another thing to really be bearing in mind here is that many of these small charities have only had this success. They've only been able to to expand in this way because people have been willing to work incredibly hard during a crisis. And that's not something these organisations can rely on indefinitely. It's very likely they will need to take on more staff to help accommodate that strain or like the charity shops we spoke about earlier, find themselves losing those volunteers who have to return to their full-time jobs, whose responsibilities change and who have less time for volunteering now that lockdown is over. This is a particular problem for small charities because so many of them are purely voluntary and they don't have those paid members of staff. So if you lose that volunteer, you're going to end up with a massive crisis in your human resourcing. And what this all means is that organisations who went through this rapid expansion suddenly find themselves without the financial and the people resources that they need to you know, sustain that increased capacity. And when that happens, that's going to be a real problem. Yeah. And I suppose that is the, that is the answer to all this optimism is, well, the axe hasn't really fallen yet right right you're absolutely right yeah so um again rita chadder said that she thinks you know in this financial year for the next six months we'll see organizations kind of pushing on so we won't see anything or any reflection of this right now um but what's going to be a critical time is going to be between january and march maybe next year sort of a few months down the line when we see people coming to file their accounts and realizing that they just don't have enough money anymore And that's when we will start to see things like people making those decisions to close or potentially to merge or, you know, looking at the options that they have because they can't sustain these levels of operation. Someone else I spoke to was uh, Paul Streets, who is the chief executive of the Lloyds Bank Foundation. And asking him about this crisis and what he thinks the future is going to be, he thinks that there is, you know, a real role for everybody in the sector to be ensuring now that small organisations are in this position to adapt further in the future. So investing in things like their finances, their data and their digital capacity. And he says that, you know, large organisations have a really important part to play in supporting small charities to do this rather than just expecting them to do that heavy lifting themselves. And I think one of the narratives of the pandemic has been this level of collaboration between charities. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully we're going to see that continue. And yeah, it doesn't always mean partnering with somebody at the same level as you. It may mean partnering with a much smaller organisation to help them in a way that isn't kind of taking over or kind of view to a merger or, you know, coming into access funding or anything like that. And I think that's entire. hopefully that, that could happen. Absolutely. And I think that collaboration piece, you know, it also extends to local services, local authorities, um, where small charities have been filling a lot of these gaps that we've seen, particularly in the last 12 months. And it all plays into this broader piece as well about, you know, really emphasising the value 
of small organisations in helping society overall get back from that COVID-19 crisis. And I mean, on that piece about local authorities, you know, we don't know what position they're going to be in in the next couple of years. And that is another kind of big problem. That's, you know, that's, this is where a lot of small organisations draw funding from. It could be that, you know, we're going to see issues there where they don't have funding and are looking to charities to pick up the slack as well. You are so right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, so it's not it's not going to be an easy road ahead. I think we're going to see some big challenges in this area. And as I said, they are they're waiting in the wings. They're not with us yet, but they're coming. But despite that, I have to say there was palpable optimism from literally everybody I spoke to uh, for this feature. Um, and I think that optimism is something that as a small charity, you really have to have. So I am, if anyone's going to make it work, this part of the sector is going to do it. I did come away feeling confident. Yeah, and I absolutely, I love the end of your piece where you were essentially saying, you know, you need optimism. Like small charities are held together on a wing and a prayer. They're held together on optimism and hope. So I think that's a real, I thought it was a really lovely um, sort of note to end on. I think I think it's very true. Um, and yeah, I think that has been the general theme from all of these stories. As, as we've said, a cautious optimism. It's going to be tough. And it could get tougher still. But amongst all of that, there is also reason to hope. Hopefully. The voluntary sector never dies. It just changes. Each week, we are bringing you a good news bulletin, a positive or a quirky news story that we have spotted in the sector. And this week, Rebecca got a week off last week, so she's bringing all the good news for us. What do you got? I am. I have been out into the world uh, and uh, come back with with two stories. It's my turn to do Conservation Corner this week. Normally, Emily is the one with the wildlife fuzzy animal stories. This one, it's my turn. Uh, So it's it's another animal naming competition. Um, I'm going to apologise if I get this wrong because I've never heard of this animal before, but I believe it's a, a northern Luzon giant cloud rat. That sounds horrifying. Yeah. Is it scary to look at? It's surprisingly cute, okay. actually. It's quite big. Now, I know people are going to freak out at the idea of, like, a giant rat. It's like something out of The Princess Bride, right? Rodents of unusual size. Um, but, like, it's it it's quite... It, 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 it's it's quite cute. It's about the size of like a kind of a gopher or something, or like a. And it, it it does look like a rat without the tail. I couldn't see the tail anyway, which I know I'll put sloppy cloth. It's surprisingly cute. Um. So uh. And this is this was uh, a baby one that was born at the Royal Zoological Society of um Scotland's Edinburgh Zoo, and it's been named Thistle by the public. Uh. Which is very very cute. I think I would have gone for mashed potato myself because <laughs> this thing, like like I said, if you haven't seen one, look it up. But it looks like the badger puppet from Bodger and Badger or like a sort of off-brand version that's maybe been like washed on too high temperature or something. It's come out a bit of funny colours. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're if you were sort of grew up born in the late 80s, early 90s, grew up with kids TV then, you'll remember Bodger and Badger, which had like a badger puppet and the badger was obsessed with mashed potato. I think can we put a picture of it in the show notes and then also a picture of Bodger and Badger? Yes. Because I just feel like we need to be illustrating this, you know properly but yes we'll put a picture in the show notes i will try and find a photo but it's basically just got these big eyes and this kind of pointy nose and it it, it is in spite of everything quite cute but yeah i'd have called it mashed potato i think myself <laughs> um so followers of the zoo's social media platforms were invited to suggest names for this baby which was born in april to mum tabba and dad toby um and keepers at the wildlife conservation charity chose the name thistle for the female pup uh, in a tribute obviously to scotland's national flower 
Um, so the northern Luzon giant cloud rat family, which, by the way, a group of these animals is known as a mischief. Love that. That is adorable. That's objectively adorable. Uh, and they can be seen in Edinburgh Zoo's magic forest. Well, I'm going to have to go, but I'm also going to have to go to the zoo to look for a gopher because I love the fact that you said it's about the size of a gopher as if I was going to go, of course, I know how big a gopher is. I can't think of <laughs> maybe Maybe a small beaver. I don't quite know how big beavers are, but I think it's like a small beaver. I'll say that. Okay. What about, can you do anything more domesticated? Like a cat? Is it the size of a cat or smaller? I'd say bigger. It's rounder than a cat. It's probably lengthwise about the size of like a large cat, but it's very, it's very sort of bubbly shape. It's kind of, it's got curves. This thing's got curves. Okay. And she is rocking them. Do you know what? This one is rocking I'm her just curves. Imagining. You go girl. This is why, okay, taxidermy from the Victorian age was so terrible because yes. they didn't have photographs. They couldn't take pictures. So all of the taxidermy and like the anatomical drawings from that time where people were going out and discovering new new species, they're like, I don't know, it's the size of like a cat, but not. It like it looks like a mashed potato kind of puppet. And there's like a, an artist on the other end of the phone going, yeah, yeah, all right, I'm drawing, I'm drawing. This is why. Old, old, old school taxidermy looks so deranged. Go to the Horniman Museum. Yeah, I was going to say that is the prime example where they have a walrus uh, and they sent back the skin and the skeleton uh, for it to be stuffed. <laughs> and nobody at the other end had seen a walrus before, so they didn't know it was supposed to have wrinkles. So what they still have in the Horniman Museum <laughs> is this so smooth. absolutely gigantic and completely smooth walrus um, and it's i love the i i love the horniman museum walrus oh my gosh so many happy memories for people who aren't familiar with the horniman museum it's in southeast london and it's one of these kind of you know victorian bloke who went off adventuring and sent back animals his private collection has been turned into a, a museum that's very lovely and very open to the public um but yeah this 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 walrus that just looks like it was like it looks like like a cartoon that's been pumped up with a hot air, with a, an air, a balloon <laughs> yes. pump. You know, that's, that's it. it's, it's, the, it's the best thing. So yes, so moving on from odd animals and bad taxidermy. So um, there's also a quick little BBC story that I came across uh, just now, which is that um, according to data from Nationwide, um, Britons spent more money on charity dating and their pets as COVID restrictions continue to ease, uh, which I thought was a really nice kind of. In, uh, th- th- that's the, the that was, I think where the biggest increase in spending was which i just thought was so nice and wholesome you know we're spending money on charity which obviously good thing dating getting out to know people connecting making up for anything you might have missed during the pandemic and uh, yeah and pets and i just thought that was really nice and wholesome and good news for charities and i think just for people as well i know that's it's really nice that's just a lovely way to wrap up charity dating and pets that i mean that could also be uh, another name for this podcast actually maybe that's what we just maybe that's what we need to now recall the new, the good news corner because I mean I suppose if you've got the giant cloud rat the horrifying anatomically incorrect cloud rat um. Um, so on that note uh, we'll be back with another episode soon um, make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then I'm Emily Burt and I'm Rebecca Cooney and our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio We'll see you next week.